Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast on COVID-19. I'm Emily Donahue. As news of successful vaccine trials raise hope that the global pandemic may soon be under control, coronavirus spikes are being reported around the country. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence, Dr. Bill Lang, and Dr. Fred Southwick discuss vaccine rollouts and temper the good news with caution. Let's listen in. Fred and Bill, uh, once again, thanks for the time. Let's start with uh, the FDA approval process and where we are and what's a reasonable schedule for seeing the vaccine uh, beginning to go into uh, distribution for the general public. David, my sense is that the probably uh, Pfizer, along with BioNTech, are going to be ready to apply for their emergency use authorization right after Thanksgiving, either the first or second week of December. And uh, the FDA, because they have been working very closely with them throughout the last phase of the studies, they've indicated that they can probably approve. Now, that's not a definite that they're going to go through their standard process, but they will probably give them their emergency use authorization sometime mid to late December so that uh, distribution and um, uh, administration of vaccine could begin in mid to late December. Uh, Moderna is looking like they're probably a week behind that process and, and almost they would have to be a week behind the process because the committees at the FDA, there's so much overlap between them, they'll have to do one then the other. Uh, but it's looking like we'll have immunizations beginning sometime right around Christmas um, and then we'll uh, then ramp, starting to ramp up over the, the course of January. That is, of course, assuming that these independent um, uh, review bodies from the FDA do do in fact give the emergency use authorization. As far as quantity of vaccine that they've we're looking like there's going to be somewhere on the order of of 30 to uh, 20 to 30 million courses of vaccine. And I say that because we're looking like we'll have somewhere between 40 and 60 million doses of vaccine. And it's a but for both of these, it's a two shot series. So that will be over the first you know, first few weeks, depending on how fast it can be distributed. And then that number will be ramping up over the course of the, the winter and into the spring. Fred, any perspective from your end on this? Well, I, I think the first series, uh, to first group to receive it will be healthcare providers and first responders. And I can tell you, our health system is ready to go. When that vaccine arrives, uh, we will be ready. So uh, and that'll make a big impact, I think, on our ability to safely care for patients. So we're very excited about this possibility. David, one of the big one of the big news pieces that came out over the last week or so on the vaccine is that initially it was it looked like um, it was going to require this ultra cold uh, distribution and storage of the vaccine for both of the the mRNA vaccines. Now both of them have modified that. The on Moderna side, they said that this can be distributed at just regular uh, refrigerator temperature, regular controlled refrigerator temperature for up to 30 days. That basically takes through distribution. Uh, intermediate storage and administration. 
but then, and then, so that's really great news. That takes a lot of the logistics difficulty out of it. And then on the uh, Pfizer BioNTech side, they've said that it can be held at room temperature, not room temperature, I'm sorry, at refrigerator temperature for at least four to five days. So at least that last leg, when it gets to the clinic, gets to the pharmacy, that it can be just in a refrigerator. It doesn't have to be in, in a deep freezer um, for the five days immediately before administration. This makes a huge difference in logistics of getting this out to people. Great perspective. And uh, Bill, I was going to ask you about that and the comparative advantages of one vaccine versus uh, the other. Uh, I just want to reiterate here your both of your best estimates for fda approval is mid to late december and then a rollout shortly after that and you're anticipating approximately uh, the availability of 60 million vaccines but that kind of begs uh, the question of who's going to get this first uh, over what period of time and of course this is a global health issue. It's not just here in the United States. So what's your perspective on the global distribution of the vaccine and the various uh, groups that will be receiving this? And realistically, so people can calibrate, you know, their expectations uh, broadly for the general public. And I mean, you know, the average American as well as, you know, their children. Um. Bill, I, I can speak to the different populations, and then maybe you can talk about worldwide how this can be distributed. Um, I, you know, I worked actually for a long time when we had a, a limited influenza vaccine one year. I was actually on the committee that decided who got the vaccine first. And I think the same priorities that came at that time will apply here. And that is, obviously, the caregivers, those that are immediately working with patients need to be vaccinated those that are at highest risk for complications, and that will be the elderly and those that have underlying conditions that predispose them would be next. Then from there, uh, it's pretty open. I think probably pregnant uh, women, if it's approved for them, I don't know of that approval, was another group that was covered. And then it would really be by probably by age and, and moving down the age groups as we move along. But and then from there, I think it's a lot more subjective uh, who should receive it. And there are different ideas about which populations should be next. And I, I really can't comment on, on what would be best. I think it's going to depend on different local areas who would be considered most important to get vaccinated. Well, and I think that's an important point because the, the strategy that is being taken is as much of the management of this vaccine, of this disease has been is a state level. The federal government's going to distribute it to the states and the states are going to determine their their uh, prioritization with guidance from that has come out from the Institute of Medicine um, on what is a recommended priority. But it'll be at the state level that the final prioritization, at least the way we understand it right now, uh, will be made. But as far as on the international levels, um, David, you had said 60 million doses. I think it's the early, the initial dose is probably going to be on the lower end of that in the United States, um, because we're probably going to have on the order of 60 million doses available uh, globally right at the beginning. I mean, I mean, right out of the gate. That number, of course, is going to ramp up. 
What we've been looking at primarily are the four companies that are US-based. There are a number of other vaccines that are being developed. Interestingly, a couple of those are Chinese vaccines that have announced some difficulties with their vaccine over the last week. Um, so they may not play as much in this. But as far as the development and manufacture, and especially the manufacture of the vaccine, the largest manufacturer of vaccines in the world is, the, is in India. And uh, they've already been manufacturing vaccine, uh, waiting for approval. So they're going to be able to turn out hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine very, very rapidly. So I think much of the United States, what we've been looking at with, with Moderna, with Pfizer, um, with Johnson & Johnson, um, AstraZeneca, which is shared right, with, right. With, with Great Britain. Um, right. those, will, those will be primarily, uh, with the exception of the AstraZeneca, which is shared with Great Britain, those will be the US-centric vaccines. And then the AstraZeneca vaccine working through, through the UK, will, will, a lot of that will be focused on, on the UK and Europe. And then the Indian vaccine, and who knows what the Chinese are doing because we have very little insight as to what their plans, what their manufacturing is, and is, and what they do is probably going to be focused primarily on the four billion people in uh, in China. So it's going to be a year till we get vaccines out to the whole world. It's probably going to be well into the spring where we have vaccines out to a level in the United States where it's going to let us start thinking about getting back to relatively normal. Both of you have touched upon uh, two points that I wanted to raised with you. Number one, what is the level of international cooperation? Uh, obviously, you have a, uh, some of the world's leading companies who are manufacturing and getting some great results from their vaccine. Is, is this information being broadly shared or it's sort of each company develops their own and brings it to market? Bill, I, I'm not sure. I can tell you in general, uh, scientific and pharmaceutical firms do share information, uh, particularly on something that is of, of global concern. And I would, I, I think most countries, certainly I know the NIH is sharing data with Great Britain and uh, other countries. So, and, and really the, the uh, vaccine that Pfizer is developing was developed in Germany originally. So there is, I think, a lot of international cooperation. And in science in general, uh, there has been very broad communication throughout the world. And that's been forever since I've been in research, that has been the case. Well, and specifically with regard to these vaccines, the, the leadership of the major companies are involved in this. They're saying, yes, they, they of course, they're going to want to make sure that they make back their, their investments in this, but they are sharing information uh, fairly broadly. Um, there's just in the last week, there was some issue with uh, one of the organizations uh, saying that there had been some industrial espionage regarding their specific uh, techniques and tools. But generally speaking, these the everybody has been saying, no, this is a worldwide problem. We've got to work together on this. Yeah, one, one very uh, clear example is when China sequenced the virus, they released that sequence within 24 hours. And that is how actually the uh, vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine was developed in that they knew what sequences to go after in the spike protein to create the mRNA message to begin to create that vaccine. And that was started very early 
because those sequences were shared uh, throughout the world very, very quickly. So those are important points. I would bookend it with the fact, and Bill, you just alluded to it, that um, law enforcement and intelligence community officials are reporting various efforts around industrial espionage, cyber attacks to uh, understand sort of where various companies are in the development and possibly to, to steal some trade secrets. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, the second thing, because um, we are talking about when do we get back to normalcy, what I'm hearing both of you say is that it may very well be um, until the third quarter or fourth quarter of 2021 before we can begin to think about the full reopening of businesses and movie theaters and uh, for shopping centers and um, theaters and athletic uh, events. Am I hearing you correctly? David, I tend to be, I, I've, I've said this in many forums that, that I tend to be on the optimistic side. What I generally say is that I think that we'll be most of the way out of this, not done, but most of the way out of this over the course of the spring. So basically, which basically means through the first half, it'll be into the third quarter. We'll still be we'll still be immunizing some people and there are going to be some people who just don't want to get immunized. Um, but I think that we're going, we're going to reach a point where we have enough immunized that we can take off controls and tell people, OK, look, at this point, if you're not going to get immunized, that's on you. Um, but we, we certainly need to have a good marketing program so we can get to enough people between the people who are immunized and the people who have natural immunity from infection that we are reaching something that represents herd immunity, which we still don't know exactly what that number is, but we're going to need to get to that point. Yeah, one of the exciting findings is a recent study in Cell looking at immunity of individuals who had SARS-CoV-1. That virus uh, developed in 2003. They're finding 18 years later that these individuals actually have immunity. So this suggests that a significant number of people will have lifelong immunity. And so that um, once we're all vaccinated, the likelihood of this particular virus coming back is infinitesimal. And I, I agree with Bill. I think about June, July will be pretty normal. Good to hear. Uh, in the interim, Fred... The statistics that have been coming out um, are far from normal and are quite frankly alarming. And I know uh, various state leaders, governors, and mayors are uh, scrambling to respond. Uh, some are taking a macro approach. Some are taking a micro approach to managing um, the infection rates. Maybe you can give us some insights of what this last week has revealed and particularly uh, with the state of Texas? Well, I think it's Texas, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Iowa have been particularly bad. And I think what it comes down to is a large percentage of the population doesn't want to follow standard infectious uh, disease protocols for preventing the spread of infection. And once you get up to these high percentages of people who are actively infected, who are spreading the virus, then even those that are taking precautions can accidentally run across someone who is uh, carrying the virus and who is not uh, practicing uh, using masks. So when you get to those high levels, 
Um, for instance, I think uh, North Dakota was somewhere around 140 per 100,000 per day uh, new cases. In fact, it was estimated to be the it was the highest incidence in the world. And let me let me just yeah. add. I can add the actual percentages on that because I, oh, I have good. them yeah. here. So Excellent. as of as of Wednesday, one point in North Dakota, this is one point three percent of the population is confirmed to be getting COVID nineteen every day. And remember, the estimates of those who are confirmed versus those who had it and didn't bother to get care or or are asymptomatic. You know, there's this. It's actually a multiple of that, but yes. just at the usually just at, tenfold. <laughs> yes. So just at the confirmed cases, 1.3 percent. That means 10 percent of the entire state population of North Dakota is going to have acquired uh, COVID-19 in just this week because their numbers are staying up high. Right. So. So, and that's just the confirmed. So the real number is going to be higher. So one of the things that I'm really going to be interested in is at that rate, North Dakota should, in theory, get towards herd immunity pretty quickly. But we're not seeing that yet, certainly. But it'll be yeah. interesting. Nationally, we've had about 3.5% of the population known to have been infected. If we say even five five times that, uh, and as as Fred said, some people think it may be as high as ten ten times that. But I just I just use five five times to be fairly conservative about it. So that means at this point we have somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent of the population that's immune. Well, we if we need to get to seventy percent for herd immunity, which we think that's the number, but no one has a no one's going to hang their hat on that. We still have a ways to go, and that's why immunizations become vaccinations become so critical. And obviously, the herd immunity both of you are referencing there's the herd immunity that comes from people becoming infected and surviving, and there's the herd immunity from being vaccinated. So big difference. And Fred, I think you had noted the overrun. Uh, why this is so important? It's not just the numbers, but it's the ability of medical facilities to respond and to actually manage the sick. And there are hospitals being overrun in places such as Houston and El Paso right now. Yes, and, and also North Dakota and South Dakota. What, what's really upsetting as a healthcare provider is we have been saying what needed to be done to prevent this infection. And because of disinformation by various uh, news organizations and other uh, talk show hosts, people have not believed us. And as a consequence, this virus has spread rampantly. And we know that a roughly 6% of those that get infected are going to get hospitalized. And now, because they did not listen to healthcare providers, they are now flooding our hospitals. The nurses and physicians are overwhelmed. They are very stressed by the large number of deaths they are witnessing, which they've never witnessed in their careers before. And a number of them are burning out and actually quitting. So it has done serious harm, not only to the population, but those that provide the care are being uh, really stressed in an unnecessary way if we had all listened to and followed the rules, the basic science of infection control. And I want to, in just the few remaining moments, uh, we have the Thanksgiving holidays coming up. You've already given your common sense um, guidelines. 
it will be interesting to follow the data, I assume, after Thanksgiving, because to your point, Fred, and, and the point you have made, Bill, we'll see whether people are complying with the rules, and that includes the large family gatherings. Obviously, the holiday period is particularly taxing and difficult for families and children who are returning from colleges and relatives who would otherwise want to, and friends who would want to get together. Um, a bit of advice, not just narrowly with respect to COVID, but also general health. Uh, questions have been raised about vitamin supplements and, you know, how we should be leading our lives. Maybe you can share just in advance of the holidays what people should be doing. Bill, why don't you talk on supplements and sure. I'll talk about some other. Okay. So supplements, uh, we actually, before we, we got on today, we had a little discussion of supplements. Um, the only one that's really has a fairly significant uh, evidence that it's helping is vitamin D3. Uh, that's a very common supplement. Many people take D3 routinely anyway. Um, you know, if you're, especially if you're not in a place where you get enough sun exposure, which makes vitamin D uh, naturally, it's probably a good idea to think about taking a vitamin D3, and especially as we're in the winter time when people are more covered up. The other one that there's not, there's been a lot of talk about, there's not a lot of good evidence, but it's also in, in normal quantities, do not overdose, is not going to hurt you as zinc. Um, but you may remember that zinc was was touted as the uh, cure-all for the t the standard seasonal cold a few years ago. And it turned out that it re really didn't, did not change anything significantly on on normal viral cold syndrome uh, symptoms, so it's uh, it's another thing to think about. But I wouldn't I wouldn't hang your hat on on zinc. Um, D three has been shown to be beneficial. And as far as other advice, um, exercise, sleep, and good nutrition—the very things that keep us all healthy. The evidence is quite good. If someone has a good aerobic capacity because they've been working out the likelihood of them getting severe disease is much lower. So I think the, a healthy lifestyle will serve to protect you from serious COVID-19 infection. And David, before we leave, I do, I do want to give one piece of what I think may be a hopeful good news. Um, when we look at worldwide statistics, uh, Europe led the U.S. in this current wave by about two to three weeks. Well, Europe also now has peaked about 10 days ago. Uh, Europe appears to be, at least for now, appears to be on the downward side of this wave. So it's possible that the U.S. could be followed. If we, if we follow them at the same time that we follow them up, we follow them down, that would certainly be good news. But we do have the holidays, the Thanksgiving holiday especially, that's coming in that could wreak havoc with uh, our, our current statistics on this wave. Yeah, one exciting thing is yesterday for the first time, Fauci was allowed to be at a news conference uh, with the other government officials. The second exciting piece of news is the CDC made an announcement of the danger of large family gatherings and that you should only have your Thanksgiving with your immediate household and no one else should come over. So that was the CDC making that recommendation publicly, one of their first public briefings in months. So I think science is starting to uh, be allowed to speak. And that's very, very important. If we're going to have ours 
uh, cases drop the way Europe does, Europe has been much more uh, um, willing to follow the science of the spread, although there's some resistance there as well. Um, this is a good sign that maybe we can get this epidemic under control. I was going to say the other bit of good news, Fred, is uh, Dr. Fauci apparently is practicing what he is preaching, and he's keeping his uh, Thanksgiving dinner to just, uh, I believe, himself and his wife. That's right, yeah. And keeping the family relatives, and he's referred to this as uh, share the love during this holiday season, keep people away from each other. And so uh, they'll be doing a Zoom session. I want to thank both of you. I want to wish our audience and uh, both of you a very safe, uh, happy, and well-deserved Thanksgiving holiday. We look forward to getting together uh, next week. You as well, David. Thank you. Thank you, David. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more, visit rainnetwork.com slash join. That's R-A-N-E network.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.